When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for June 10th, 2021, the Mansion on the Hill edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School New Haven. Emily is the only person who didn't write a story about Yale University Law School this week, as far as I can tell. There was a story about Yale University Law School in every single publication that I read, and most of them were really long. So congratulations on your non-byline, Emily. Thank you. I, I feel pretty good about that one, actually. John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation, CBS's Sunday Morning, and CBS is everything, is joining us from New York. Hello, John. <laughs> and CBS is CCTV of the lower utility room. <laughs> That's good. Is that, where, is that where your new show is going to air? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the new streaming channel of CCTV. <laughs> <laughs> if I got a show, that's where it would be. Uh, this week, is Joe Manchin responsible if President Biden and the Democrats can't pass any laws, if voting reform fails, if criminal justice reform it goes nowhere, if no new states are admitted to the union, and if the filibuster survives, should he be blamed? Then what is going on at the Biden Justice Department and why is it defending weird and seemingly abhorrent positions taken by President Trump's Justice Department. Then we will dig into George Packer's fascinating piece about the four Americas, each America worse than the next, that we have fractured into. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. So progressives and even just regular old liberals are irritated with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who this week threw a vicious one-two at his Democratic colleagues by first coming out firmly against H.R. 1, which is the voting rights bill. Voting rights, is that what we call it? Voting rights bill, Emily? Voting, sure. Sure, voting rights bill. The Democrats have been hanging on to, hanging hopes on to. And then he also came out against reforming or changing the filibuster, which is a necessary condition for doing any of the big things that Democrats want to do that don't involve spending a bunch of money. Uh, such as criminal justice reform, voting rights reform, adding new states, various other things. So, John, you have talked to the West Virginia Democratic senator. Does he see himself as a menace to Democrats and a frustrator of Democratic ambitions? I mean, he, he wouldn't list that as, as his principal quality. <laughs> he recognizes that as the outcome of his view in the world. Um you know, his view is that the filibuster in particular is uh, that you shouldn't chuck it because uh, the Democrats will be in the 
minority suit minority soon enough again and just as they relied on it under Donald Trump they will rely on it again and in some future situation when they're in the minority and secondly that and we talked about this last week but that bipartisanship has its has its own benefits and we can test those two notions in our discussion so there are these interesting different lenses to view this through right so Manchin's lens is Democracy is going to continue pretty much as it has. The parties are going to switch back and forth in power, and thus the filibuster will be a friend to Democrats again. And also, he just is harking back to a different era of bipartisan cooperation. He likes that era better, and he would like to imagine it returning. And then there are the very worried progressives and liberals who are saying, wait a second, this is like the eye of the storm, this two-year period in which the Democrats control barely the House and the Senate and uh, have Joe Biden in the presidency. And if we don't do something dramatic, we being the Democrats, then the Republicans are going to be able to succeed in forcing minority rule on the country because of their structural advantages in the Senate, because there are no new states, because of all the gerrymandering, and because of all the voter suppression laws that they're enacting in various states. And it's like two different pictures of reality, um, and they are very unaligned. And and I guess like that's that's the most striking so, thing to me about this. It's like really different ideas about what's going to happen to the democracy. Well, and John, I want to dig into this around Manchin, which is that he cannot be, he's obviously not a stupid person. He's almost certainly incredibly smart. You don't get to be governor or senator and this successful politician without being really, really smart. He has also lived through the last 30 years of American politics and been part of it and seen the Senate that, that he serves in. How does he explain how does he reconcile his view of the value of bipartisanship and the possibilities with the lived experience of Mitch McConnell's Senate or, or well, the Senate he's in now? Well, and not only the lived experience, I mean, as I asked him about on Face the Nation, with the lived experience that he articulated when he talked about the Republicans not voting for the January 6th commission. I mean, he said it was a betrayal of their um, oath of office and that they put party over country. I mean, it was stinging remarks, regardless of who says them, but particularly illustrative or important because of Joe Manchin. So my question was, if you say that about them on this important thing, what gives you any hope, faith or otherwise that Republicans on things that are less vital or I shouldn't say less vital, but things where. um, How about more at stake in terms of actually losing power? Yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a different, that's a distinction, that's separate. But um, the point is, if you feel that way about them, why are they suddenly going to, like, do the right thing on all these other instances, which, and your belief in bipartisanship is founded on the idea that they would do the right thing. I mean, he basically believes, you know, as you said, David, in the in the idea that if you have the, if you force this, if the system forces bipartisan cooperation, it will come. Lots and lots of people would say the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present, as Lincoln would say, which is I don't that, think that lots system of, Lots does, of people wouldn't say No, that. lots of people would. <laughs> I have that tripping off my tongue. No, I don't. But lots the, uh, of people would agree with that sentiment. Yeah. But here, here's where I think he comes up against the most difficult part of his position, which is that the clock is ticking on voting rights in particular. So his argument is Republicans will see the light of day and they will recognize that that their short-term obstructionism will hurt them in the long run. 
when it comes to voting right, all, rights, all the Republican efforts, close to 400 of them in the state houses, are making big gains for Republican power accumulation and maintenance. There is no way a Republican in Washington, D.C. is going to vote for any voting rights bill that dilutes what's being done for Republican power in the states. And therefore, the longer you wait, the more that's going to be the case, not the less. His argument is, you know, it takes time and over time, Republicans will see the light of day. On voting rights in particular, that just, there's just no way that that's the way it's going to work. And so that's where his argument falls the most. I mean, it's right. It's like watching the other, the Republicans are locking in an advantage on the state level everywhere they can. And Joe Manchin is imagining that the incentives will, in Washington, lead them to undo that advantage. I just, it literally doesn't make sense. Do, do you think, do you guys think that if he were agreeable to H.R. 1 and to filibuster abolishment, they would happen? It's as simple, that he is this one man standing athwart the history, or, or this is overstating his power, because it's, you even if Manchin suddenly said, okay, fine, for H.R. 1, that doesn't well, mean that it actually becomes law. You have Senator Cinema in Arizona who also shares his view about the filibuster. So, no, it's not just Manchin. I think it's also worth talking about H.R. 1, also called For the People Act, and the critique of For the People Act, Manchin's proffered alternative, which is an expanded version of the John Lewis Act. So... H.R. 1 has a lot of, like, pro-small-D democracy measures in it, same-day voter registration, automatic registration, um, etc. It also tries to correct for extreme partisan gerrymandering. It um, forces much more disclosure of donors through independent expenditure groups. It's like a big grab bag, has lots of stuff in it that Democrats want. It also doesn't address, except for the partisan gerrymandering aspect of it, these structural issues about power, right? Like, it's not going to change the composition of the Senate. It's not going to add new states, etc. It's also not going to do anything about these new laws and Republican legislatures that look like they're about trying to make it easier to overturn election results. So you can argue that for all its um, happy voter participation elements, that it won't have that great an effect in elections, and that it's also like a little bit behind the eight ball. The John Lewis Act, which um, Manchin wants to expand, would bring back the Department of Justice in having this kind of it's called preclearance, basically like a monitoring role when states want to change election laws. You have to run it through Department of Justice. They get to decide whether you get to like close the polling place or make it harder for people to vote. And Manchin's version, it would apply to every single state. And he says he's been talking to Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski about this. You know, could be an interesting strategy. Not clear the Supreme Court would uphold it, but like, that's also true about the For the People Act, given the composition of the Supreme Court. What I don't understand is how he thinks there are 10 Lisa Murkowskis. Like, right. if <laughs> that is also something that would fall to the filibuster, it, do, it like literally, again, is illogical to me. Yeah. And um, but you're right. So he's right on in terms of fixing or giving a, a smarter fix to the current challenge, but not the approach through which to do it. Going back to our original point is that Republicans are unlikely to undo the gains they're making at the state houses. We should mention quickly that obviously Manchin has local reasons to be, to believe in this view of bipartisanship, too. Uh, some people would say, you know, he's the he's from comes from a coal state. And the Koch brothers are you know leaning on him. Uh, you could also argue that he um, that his belief in bipartisanship is also based on the idea that if Democrats 
um, change the rules of the filibuster to then pass a voting rights law that Republican voters would see as a, a power grab for Democrats, there's no way he could survive in the state. If he was the person who helped the Democrats do that, both change the rules and grab power, that would be basically suicide in his state. I mean, I guess it is possible that that is true for Joe Manchin. When you look at the polling for these voter participation voting rights bills are actually very popular. And in fact, Jane Mayer of The New Yorker reported on a meeting of some conservative activists and advisors to people like Mitch McConnell, you know, just like a small private huddle about what to do. And they were concerned about how well the voting rights provisions were polling. So there's something very odd here. Now, again, like maybe Manchin has his own polls or he just knows the heart and soul of West Virginia. And, you know, increasing Democratic participation is going to be the thing that gets him thrown out of office. It's hard for me to imagine the attack ad. Well, A, I think... I, I think voter, voting rights is one of these things which it, it's become it's pre-partisan, right? It hasn't quite gotten to the point where it sorts. Yeah, but right. in this conference and, call, they were talking about all the partisan messaging they were trying to attach to it when they were doing these polls, and it didn't work. That's what was so worrying to well, them. It's possible that that would change over time, I guess. Yeah, I think, David, you're right. The pre I mean, we've seen how quickly partisanship sorts on what seemingly before were big issues how quickly the iron filings align. And if you got rid of the filibuster, um, remember also, it's not broad popularity or whatever that matters. It's enthusiasm to the voters who are going to turn out in an off-year election. The the other thing, I, I just want to go back to, and I think I've made this point about 15 times on the show in the last few oh, months. Oh, good. People will be so excited for the 51st. That was really it's a way to sell. 15, 16. So the 16th only, Emily. Oh, okay. Uh, Phew. Not the 51st. 51st will be D.C. or Puerto Rico. Um is that it, yes? You can sit here all day long and be and and hold Mansion to account and say, "What are you thinking of? What's your problem?" But ultimately, the guy is a miracle for the Democratic Party. It is remarkable that they have a senator, a Democratic senator from West Virginia, and to to demand that he have to, he has to hold forth what the party wants on every issue that they want is unrealistic, and that that. You know, these, there are these structural problems which make it very hard for Democrats to hold the Senate, and they, they've just barely edged over through think, the, the miracle they pulled off in Georgia. And I think everyone, you know, hoped that, oh, now you could have a sweeping progressive reform and all the legislation that you want. And, and Manchin will go along with some of it, but he doesn't have to go along with all of it. He is an independent person, and he, has his, he is a single actor. This is not a party system where things get voted on in blocks. It's sure, like you, but the party you, may commit yeah. suicide in the process in terms of yes, being able to win elections down yes, the line. Yes, he, he, may, he may be making, a, making it difficult for them. But again, it's like it, it is, it, I, think it's, I think it's kind of unfair to this person to say, like, you're the, if, if the filibuster remains, if we don't get you know, Puerto Rico and D.C. as states— if we don't get uh, election reform, you're the reason. I mean, it's, there are a lot of reasons, and he's one of them. But it's not like, – he, he, didn't, he didn't fuck up the North Carolina Senate election. He didn't fuck up the Maine Senate election. He, he's, he is one person who is in one position right now, but he's not, he is not the, the point on which all – sins fall. But you can be not responsible for all those things and wind up being the point on which all those things fall. Well, one is a kind of, I mean, 
also there's the question of whether he's strategically and tactically doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, as Chris Wallace pointed out when he interviewed him, wouldn't it be smarter to just kind of stay mum and leave the threat out there of Joe Manchin either? And we should talk about this, too. He also doesn't believe in using reconciliation which um, is why infrastructure is dying, because President Biden has no alternative route. Because if you can't go through reconciliation because you don't have 50 votes, then Republicans have all the leverage. And Wallace's point was, and we talked about this too, which is, you know, why not just stay silent and let Republicans guess? And if they think you might go through reconciliation, they might negotiate with the White House to get a little bit more of what they want rather than losing and and then losing everything through reconciliation. So by putting his cards on the table, Manchin not only gives up his own leverage, but also changes the leverage proposition for the White House, which now basically Republicans know that Biden has no alternative route. That's a great I love that point. Emily, were you about, is there something you want to? I love that point too. I mean, I guess I will say, David, in response to what you're saying earlier, I mean, you can argue that it's just never surprising when a politician goes against his or her own perceived electoral interests. And like, there's nothing to see here. That's just what politicians do. But this is a case in which it's, I don't think, obvious that, you know, Manchin is going to significantly change his chances of getting reelected. And he, like, really is in this key position, even if there were other dominoes that fell to get him here. So... Anyway, right. No, he might. But it might be it's not, it's not even his own electoral interest. It might be his actual belief. It's right. His own, it's his own deeply held belief. Now, you think it's misguided. You think it's wrong. And and you think it's going to be you know very difficult for his party if he continues to do this. But it's it's more deeply held, apparently, than something that mon- not mundane, that uh, instrumental as his electoral hopes. Sure. But I think we also just did a pretty good job of dissecting why that deeply held belief is based on really, really shaky premises from a disappeared past. Yes. Yes. Sure. to your point, David, he, he, I think he does believe in these things. People can argue that he's misguided, but I think he does believe in them. And I think that they are going to lead to, at least on infrastructure, a policy preference he prefers, which is infrastructure, if it passes, will probably be closer to something clo- you know, around $400 billion, And it will be a kind of the traditional infrastructure definition, roads and bridges and that kind of thing, probably broadband too. That's his policy preference. And it will, be, it will have to pass, if it does pass, with 60 or 10 Republican votes. So that's his ideological kind of best method for doing it. So in that sense, his position is, is seems to be driving towards that outcome. Um, but And then the second point I would make is that your point, David, is a difference between what people might want and the, t- and the reality of politics in the moment. And there is a real mixing, particularly on voting rights, but on all these issues, whereas if, where if you are a Democrat or just an analyst trying to objectively describe the situation so as to best either predict the future or, if you're a Democrat, create strategies that deal with the reality and not what you hope to be, you do get a response from the left, and there's also one from the right, where people say, oh, well, because you're articulating the reality of what's happening with voting rights, you don't believe in voting rights. And that mixing and misunderstanding between what is just an assessment and what is a policy preference gets people all confused and is confusing these politics in this moment. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? 
Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Department of Justice under Attorney General Merrick Garland has really infuriated a lot of people on the left in the past couple of weeks. What have they done, Emily Bazelon? Uh, well, so Eugene Carroll sued President Trump for defamation after she accused him of rape years ago in a department store. And then he accused her effectively of lying and said he'd never even met her when there was actually a picture of him at a party with her. So this lawsuit was filed in state court, um, this defamation suit in New York. And just as it seemed like um, Carol might get some discovery, might be able to like go in and try to prove that Trump um, knew he was lying, the former attorney general, William Barr, took the lawsuit and plopped it down in federal court. And he had the power to do that as attorney general. Then a federal district court judge said that um, the lawsuit could proceed, rejecting the arguments by the Trump Justice Department that what President Trump said about E. Jean Carroll fell within the scope of his employment as president, and that as a president, he was a government worker covered by this federal law called the Westfall Act that effectively gets federal employees out of lawsuits in the scope of their office or employment. So the question was, what was the Biden Justice Department going to do with this lawsuit? What was their position? Were they going to continue the Trump position and appeal this district court ruling or not? And they have decided to stick with the Trump position. And the reason is probably two or threefold. For one thing, in general, the Justice Department is not excited about changing the position it takes in cases when a new administration comes in. They're supposed to be doing something called law, which is different than something called politics, kind of like judges. And it's not great when every time you come into office, you just like change all your positions in a bunch of cases because it makes the government seem like they are just driven by politics and you can't rely on them. So that's one kind of overall global reason for this sticking with the position. And another is just about like defending the broad prerogatives and power of the presidency and not making it easier for presidents to get sued for lots of different reasons, right? Trying to kind of protect the president from this type of civil lawsuit. Now, the problem with that argument for me is that Bill Clinton lost a lawsuit a lot like this one in a sexual misconduct claim that Paula Jones brought against him. And the Supreme Court said, like, tough, you're in office, you can still get sued. And that seems like it's really at odds with what 
the Justice Department is arguing with here. But, you know, maybe they're trying to limit that position. And there is this kind of broader institutional way of, like, basically justifying the position that the Biden Justice Department is taking here. I don't personally agree with it, uh, really. But I, it's, it's a really interesting, like, kind of law politics dilemma. I want to dig deeper into this Carol case. I just want to note there are a couple other things that the Garland administration, Garland Justice Department, they've now, they're siding with some religious colleges in a case. Uh, well, they're which, just trying you know, to defend a law and not get displaced def- from defending a law that allows for discrimination against LGBTQ people by religious schools. And also, Emily, the, the administration at least temporarily had been going along with some Trump administration efforts to to extract records from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and CNN uh, of reporters, and in, in fact, even gagging executives of the New York Times and CNN from talking about their efforts to extract these records and leak investigations, although now the Garland Justice Department has backed off of that, right? Yeah. And then they're also trying to prevent the release of a memo from the Mueller report. So going back to the, the E. Jean Carroll case, um, I remember even at the time we talked when we talked about this the first time being pretty sympathetic to Trump. There was this argument, well, he wasn't working when he defamed her or when he's alleged to have defamed her because he's asked by he's asked by reporters about this case and he gives a response, which is allegedly defamatory. And then she she sues based on that response. And I don't understand how you can say that the president wasn't working when he responded to these questions like you you were the president when reporters ask you questions you have to answer like even if it's not about the the budget or it's not about the particular signing ceremony you're at if it's about something else you are you are your job is answering request questions from reporters and responding to reporters and so it does seem to me that that is very much in the process in the course of your regular work as you're in your job is is responding to these inquiries and now you shouldn't defame people when you're doing it but if the law exists to protect federal officials who are doing their job, it does seem to me that Trump would be covered by that. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the confusion here is the like you are correctly separating answering the questions about old rape allegations while you're president from old rape allegations from way before you were president. And I think that's correct. Like he's being asked the questions in the capacity of having to answer questions from reporters, like you said. I don't understand how this squares with the ruling I was just talking about in the Clinton versus Paula Jones case in which a civil lawsuit was allowed to proceed during a presidency. I mean, especially now, Trump's not even president anymore. Because Clinton's actions weren't while he was president. It it was all a question of whether it was behavior that was done before and whether he could be held to account for that behavior. Whereas in this case, it's it's a question of whether you're being held to account for a behavior while you're president, while you're doing your job. Yeah, maybe that's exactly right. I mean, certainly that is a really important distinction. You're right. But then the question is, surely there are limits on that. Because if you're president, and particularly this last president gave us a real life example of this, if you use the power of the office well, I guess the answer to this is impeachment. But I guess you use the power of the office to defame people wantonly. You're, you have now a bazooka in, with which to do it, whereas as a private citizen, you don't have that much power. And therefore, the 
the injury is that much more grievous when you're a president doing your job and you defame someone. So surely there must be limits. Right. And as a policy matter, and this might not have anything to do with the actual law, I think it's kind of to the side, but as a policy matter, you might be willing to stop the lawsuit while the president was in office, but then you would want it to pick up afterward. You wouldn't want them to have no consequences forever, I don't think. Now, that's not in the, the text of the statute, but I'm just pointing that out. I mean, the other boring tactical wait but could you pick it but in the gene carroll case could you pick it up and and say that was that was defamation or would you still be would it still be barred by the sovereign immunity point i mean i'm arguing that you would be able that a properly written statute in this context especially regarding the president would be to say this protection from suit only stands while you're in office. Like, you shouldn't be able to have the sovereign immunity of the United States afterward if there's a valid claim. But, you know, we could argue, like, that's not protective enough of the president and the presidency. I'm going to say one more thing about this Westfall Act, which the federal judge who ruled against um, Trump said. I don't think that it applies to the president. I don't think he is a government worker. There are lots of things in which, like, the president is not actually bound by certain federal statutes because he's not a government employee in the same way as someone who works for a federal agency. The White House is not an agency, technically speaking. Now, there's law on both sides of this. Like, what I'm saying is not some foregone conclusion. But I actually think that's, like, a boring technical reason why Trump really could lose on this point in the Second Circuit. You guys, we're old enough to have been through the Trump years and to have been through the Clinton years and like to have been active adults, sentient creatures. And I I covered the, the Clinton's uh, Lewinsky, Mishigas. I think you did too, John. Um, I sure did. The, I am really ambivalent about the idea that presidents should be dragged into these kind of cases. And I, I, I thought that the, that the Supreme court, ruling at that time. I mean, I, I thought, you know, Clinton probably should have resigned, but that was not because of Paul Jones' civil suit. I thought it was for other things. But the amount of distress and chaos caused by these basically private legal actions is really significant and distracting. And I know we don't want presidents to be above the law, and we don't want presidents to, ha- to be able to defame people and presidents to be able to, to commit civil fraud and, and, and civil wrongs, civil torts against other people. But I also do worry that if you, if you allow too much of it, you end up with a president who spends much of their time just dealing with the chaos of lawsuit. I think this abuts what we were talking about in the previous topic, which is that is a principle that you're holding. And in fact, the conversation we're having, we should note, is in the context of basically the Biden and Justice Department reasserting norms where it is not in their direct political or their, I should say, immediate political interest to do so because their immediate political interest might be to embarrass the former president who is claiming that Biden's not a legitimate president or just to keep their base happy or a number of other things that that they could do just for purely political reasons. So they're reasserting a norm. You're reasserting a norm. But what the people would say in our previous conversation and in this one is that that norm can't exist in a world where impeachment is basically useless. That if the the traditional role for sanctioning a president for his behavior is broken because you, you'll never be able to get the majority you need to convict, then the justice system has to re, re, you know, readjust. 
I'm not sure the solution to impeachment not working is let's let's oh. unleash a thousand lawsuits and mosquitoes. Do we even care about presidents getting punished post presidency? No, no, we don't care at all. No, we don't no, care. Post presidency is fine, but that doesn't that doesn't accomplish what John's talking about, which is the the sort of punishment for misbehavior in office. Well, I guess it does to the to the extent that you you might not like the punishment afterward, and therefore you it might you know it might make you behave in the in the short term because you just you know that you're not don't have safe safe harbor after you're out. Hmm. Emily, final question on this, which is: Do you think that what Garland is doing is, as John states, a kind of return to norms, or is it is it out of the ordinary for them to be? doing what they're doing, or is it very much in the ordinary? It's in the ordinary. I mean, (laughs) when you're thinking about the institutional norms, I would rather see them err on the side of returning to the institutional norms than messing around with them. And there are a bunch of other cases in which they have switched position. So look, if this was the only thing they had to decide, this Carroll lawsuit, they might have come down on the other side. The other thing is, you know, Merrick Garland may have some big decisions to make about whether to defend President Trump. I don't know, in other, like, who knows what's criminal charges in New York State. I mean, there's other possible issues that are going to hit the fan, so to speak, with the kind of dredging up of the past of the Trump administration. And so it may be that he's buying himself a little bit of credibility here with the stance he's taking. And I have stolen this point from Ruth Marcus of The Washington Post, friend of the GabFest. Slate Plus members get so many benefits, no ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, and of course, bonus segments here on the GabFest. So we do a bonus segment every week. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest plus, you can become a member today and get those bonus segments. And our topic this week is a quirky one, which is how much does your name, your actual name, shape your identity? As in, are all Emily's Emily-like? And what does it mean to be Emily-like? We will discover. So go to slate.com slash GabFest plus and become a member today. And we will answer the question today whether John is literally the most boring male name. That's a good I question. Feel, that's a good question, but I feel like there are other contenders. Sure. Well, we'll, we'll we plumb the depths of that very all. issue. Bob, Tim, Ted. They're all one syllable. David. We're going to get to it. Get to, let's, not, let's, let's not put all the names out there now. <laughs> We're going to save a few, like Sigmund. <laughs> Rafer. Those are going to be later. We're going to mention those later. In The Atlantic this week, and also in a book, George Packer, the George Packer, the great chronicler of American disillusion and decline, writes a piece, How America Fractured into Four Parts. It is taken from a book of his, Last Best Hope, American Crisis and Renewal. And this piece in The Atlantic makes the claim, he takes the claim that, a very familiar claim, that there's no longer a common narrative about America from Americans. And he advances that claim. He proposes that we've moved from a situation where we had one more or less agreed upon story that we had in post-war America. And I'm going to put a huge asterisk next to that because, like, who agreed upon that story? Yeah. Like, how, how much consensus really was there about it? But, like, just, and he, I think he acknowledges that to having four different Americas. And he, he characterizes them quite uh, cannily. One is a free America. And he, he uses, in, in all of these cases, the word 
uh, free is sort of think of it as being ironic quotes. Free America, which is libertarian and individualistic and anti-government, it's like the Koch brothers' America. Irresponsibly other, libertarian, I would say. Irresponsible, well, sure. Then, in, then there's smart America, which I would say that's Gabfest America. It's another way of character. It's meritocratic. It's global. It's curious. It's open. Let's but, hope that we have members of wait, all four. Yeah, of the well, Americas. let him get through these okay. before we discuss the I'm tra- problem. These are all, all stereo. It's yeah. like the stereo. Yeah. It's a stereotype, yeah. right? This is a stereotype, and I'm using it stereotypically. Yeah, everything. Everything I'm saying is in quotes, and then even words within that are in further quotes. <laughs> right. And some of them have like six quotes around, which them. is one of the challenges to the piece. But anyway, carry on. Yeah. Then there's real America, which is what you would call maybe Trump's America or Sarah Palin's America, which he narrow-minded and local and communal, poor, religious, and then just America, which is woke America, an America that's very attuned to America's failures and cruelties and focused on those failures and cruelties. So, Emily, you're reviewing, and it's it's just really interesting. I, I'm not sure what to do with this piece. I just read it and was like, wow, this is interesting. I hadn't thought about it in these terms. And the way these groups sort of butt against each other, that the, that the Democratic Party you can think of as being the tension between smart America and just America, the Republican Party, you can think of as being the tension between a free America and real America and how they are interacting and like where, where there's, there's a lot of good points that come out of it. But Emily, you were reviewing, I think the book from, for the times, what do you think is working in this and what is it missing? Well, I mean, look, whenever you make these kinds of generalizations, it's like part canny and part super irritating. And like, that's kind of part of the point. You're needling people, right? And I think Packer would probably be the first to say that he's caricaturing more of the sort of like activist, active aspects of the party that like there's tons and tons of Americans for whom none of these categories would be particularly salient. And the more- Including like, I would say like almost all black Americans, almost all immigrants- I think probably like huge percentage of black America is left out of this, but sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and lots of other people too. Like, I think there's just a way in which it's like, it's, it's very politically identified, um, kind of labeling for the most part. I mean, not entirely, but for the most part. So I was, I, I think Packer is the most energized by skewering Democrats right now. Right. So like real America and, um, free America are, like a pretty common critique of the right that like they're too libertarian and that this there's this fake populism that's distracting people. Smart America like is really an attack on the whole concept of meritocracy, which Packer has good evidence for, right? He has this line where he says like you're no more likely to get into an Ivy League or top selective college if you're not in like an upper income bracket now than you were in 1954. We really are in this point in which people are passing along as a kind of birthright the ticket to top education that brings with it a ticket to affluence and kind of success. And he, I thought, did an especially good job of making me at least think about how obsessed people get with their own family well-being as opposed to like larger public good as opposed to some kind of civic engagement and caring about the democracy go john go ahead well i no 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 i don't want to screw up your description of this unless you're just ready to stop no no i'm totally ready to stop okay so i the the classification nobody loves a classification more than me and so as a kind of blunt instrument for sorting our country um and its contradictions i think that's great and useful, and these are pretty good categories. Um, 
But the question is whether in stereotyping the categories, you so you you create a misimpression of what these groups are. And so I just jump in on the smart America idea. Clearly, there are people like that. The question is whether individual members of smart America represent the whole of smart America, because one of the claims about smart America is that, you know, they lost the capacity and need for a national identity. Other times he talks about smart America not really caring about patriotism. Smart America, like, voted and built Barack Obama in 2007 and 2008. And Obama's whole pitch, starting in 2004, was a kind of patriotic embrace of the American dream. And this idea of America as this beneficent place, which had all these wonderful claims stitched into its being. It was an incredibly patriotic and nationally formed pitch. And the people who gobbled it up were all the people in smart America. So, but wouldn't Packer argue, John, that that that, that this is almost a post-Obama split, though? Yes. That, no, that Obama is a sort of a, is a reach. It's like a is a is a is a grasp for something, well, and like an attempt to to hold that together. But actually, those things were splitting. That the Great Recession was splitting those groups was splitting that group even apart. Uh, I don't, well, I don't know. I don't think so because he characterizes those people as in the Democratic Party and Obama's not that long ago. And he's, to the extent that the Democratic Party, so I don't think, I don't think you can say that. Also, he put, one of the challenges with the book that confuses me a little you bit- sound like Joe Manchin here. Is where he puts the, the needle down. So one of the things he argues is that basically the Democratic Party abandoned white working class America and that allowed- Republicans to make cultural pitches that stole away those voters from Democrats. And so he puts that needle down. Basically, he says at one time Bill, during the Clinton administration, that's the start of Donald Trump's rise. And, and that's I know real America. That feeds real America. That's, that feeds taxonomy. real America. Exactly. That feeds real America. And uh, I know why he's doing that. And so that there is something that's true about that. But I mean, George Wallace didn't win the states he won in 1968 because he was making an argument about um, uh, that was not that was not devoid of cultural and racial issues. My point being that the pitch on cultural issues to white working class voters started long before, um, and and he acknowledges this a little bit in some places. Started long before Bill Clinton, and it was not strictly speaking an economic argument. It was based on race. It was based on people who are not like us coming to threaten our status. It was based on a whole host of things. And the reason I think this is important is if you're classifying for the purposes of correcting, I think it's much more complex than the way his stereotypes, which are necessary in some ways, paint some of these groups. So just to note, I mean, Packer does say at one point racism is in our marrow about America and that we just came like very close to having it take over the whole country. And he's talking about the Trump administration. It is true, John, I think you're you are right that his primary interest in lens is economic inequality. And so whatever distracts us and divides people and takes us away from addressing economic inequality frustrates him. Yeah. And his point, as you say, about meritocracy is incredibly tight and clear and powerful. In this right. Essay. And I don't know about you. I felt very implicated in it and spent all of Smart America passages trying to like distinguish myself from it and like run from it in every way that I could. But of course, like in a lot of ways I can't. Well, I think that's, that's an incredibly generous. Why do you, 
Don't you? I always, whenever I encounter, like, I'm like, yeah, you got me, man. You but I don't want to be like the bad part of Smart America in all its smug, like, no, except, blindness except, to uh, to people's real problems. You can know, like th- shrug it off if you want. I don't want to be that person. Who? Yeah, but like, just because you don't want to be doesn't mean you haven't been like caught. Uh, uh, exactly. That's what makes me uncomfortable. That's what I'm saying. But I don't have to like yeah, but, stick with it and not interrogate it. But I don't think your view on meritocracy is any different from his. While you may work in an institution, just like others who write about meritocracy, um, you know, that that worsens inequality and creates the uh, or contributes to the conditions he identifies. You're not blind to those. We've talked about them on this show. Well, um, sure. I'm act- and, and right. But, I, but that doesn't mean I'm like actively trying to do enough to stop them. Right. Like there's well, symbolic like affirmation and like, oh, I recognize this and awareness and like, OK. And then there's like, how am I living my life? And am I really right, doing the things that would you're still hoarding the dream? Yeah, right, like I still am teaching at Yale University. I mean, I don't. Anyway, sure, but you just, don't have a smug. You don't have a smug blindness to the to these issues, which is the way it's portrayed that um, that's that's my see. This is the tension, I think. I think it is incredibly powerful to create caricatures for the purposes of skewering in just the way you identified. But in so doing, if you if you eliminate the complexity of people who may live in smart America but recognize these shortcomings, or you eliminate the complexity of the, the greater contribution of racial and cultural um, dog whistles to the creation of the current political climate, I think you it misshapens the argument. I guess my point my overarching point and something I thought was very shrewd about Packer's characterization of just America as well is there is a lot of symbolic talk right now as opposed to deep change that affects the lives of people who are not going to read this book, don't give a shit about these categories and wouldn't really recognize themselves very much in them. And that deeply, deeply troubles me, right? Like all the posturing as opposed to like actually doing something to let like an apartment building get built somewhere where like people can have affordable housing and then the composition of your local school changes. I mean, that's what I'm talking about in a very local level. Right. This is Eitan Hirsch's idea of, of political hobbyists. Yes. But isn't this what's appealing to so many people on the kind of practical left about Joe Biden, which is that that in fact that the Biden agenda is very much aimed at the practical gains that reduce the sorts of economic inequality that Packers obsessed with. And it's and it sort of like says, you guys go over here and have your fights about, you know, whatever you're having your fights about. But we're going to build child care centers and we're going to get people jobs and have construction and and have uh have health care and that's gonna make big structural change so that, that that you did all the little nubbling little nasty little fights you're gonna have over here are peripheral to actually what really matters i totally agree with that and i think it also harks back to the points john was making about president obama and when i was listening to ezra klein's interview with obama last week i was really struck by how nostalgic it felt to me and how much the fights on the left as well as the right have departed from let's bring us all together what unites us like how can we make people's lives better and i think just america is also implicated in those divisions well i i think one of the things that i think is interesting i haven't read the rest of the book and but packer's also written about civics education and his his he's 
an enthusiast for civics education, I think, and that they, that we do need an kind of a, a society that ha- agrees on sort of what are the rules by which we operate, what are the what are the actual structures that we're governed by, and he wants civics education, and which just seems to me such a weird, narrow, hopeless kind of solution. A because lots of people support civics education. If you poll for it, everyone supports it. But what they mean by civics education is civics education that is entirely wrapped up in my master he narrative. He for that. No, he totally agrees. He's, he's like, civics education might save us or it might ruin us. I think he accounts for that. But I guess I, I think civics education uh, is, ho- is a hopeless thing, given the, the, the actual fight, the, the rhetorical fights we're having today. And I was hoping, oh, a deep outside challenge, like a pandemic, say, might knit us back further back together. Well, he's very gloomy uh, about it, the pandemic yeah, and how it Yeah, ha- no, it, understandably. It <laughs> Correctly. It, it hasn't. It, right. right. Um, but I do think actually, like, again, going back to what the Biden agenda is, that, that the Biden agenda, which may or may not succeed and like may, may the pieces of it that I may be in favor of may not get anywhere. But I do think the Biden agenda is kind of is actually much closer to being the kind of thing that will create a sense of commonality than any of the rhetorical change that we want. Right. I mean, Packer's overarching thesis is to argue that we have lost or are in imminent danger of losing what he calls the art of self-government. And that's for him a, forgive me, Tocquevillian term that has to do with like all of the ways we stitch ourselves together and have common ground. And he's really worried about that loss. And he also frames it in terms of a very traditional Western enlightenment, like a set of values about equality and liberty and rationality that are super familiar if you have that kind of Western education. I think what he does not do in the book is grapple with why for lots of people on the left and the right, that is not sufficient right now and does not feel super compelling. And so that was something I would have wanted more of in the book. But it's a really interesting like exploration of all of this. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that the structure of politics has destroyed a lot of these ideas because power is more important than these abstract notions. And therefore, if we're trying to figure out what caused this for the purposes of ameliorating it or fixing it, I felt like that would have been a useful part of the the causal forces. But I like this sorting technique. And so then the question is, why do I like it? In other words, I like it because I think it has utility in our future discussions. But maybe, but why do I think that? Well, because you recognize some truths in it, right? I mean, it doesn't have to totally hold up to have some useful framing mechanisms. And I think, you know, I thought the sort of political high wire act of the book, at least from where I stand, was his critique of just America, which is a critique of a lot of anti-racist philosophy right now. And he is basically arguing that when anti-racism goes beyond equality and becomes very subjective in its lens and very focused on individual trauma, that it's a problem for Enlightenment values. And it was a really like four square articulation of that argument that I appreciated. I didn't agree with all of it, but I thought it was really worth thinking about. Right. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are sitting in just America, real America, smart America, free America, having a having a drink, you can have a drink in any of them. What are you going to be chattering about, John? My uh, chatter is about a, a piece I saw in the um, in USA Today, which was saying, uh, which was talking about the worry in the post-pandemic age about Legionnaire's disease, the airborne illness that 
what they worried about is hotels and office buildings that have been not occupied, that Legionnaire's disease comes from bacteria that sits in pipes. So I talked about this guy who worked in, uh, I think, I believe it was a Las Vegas casino, whose job during the pandemic was to go to, to the rooms, or there was a fleet of people who did this, flushing the toilets and running the water in order to keep it circulating for fear of Legionnaire's disease. So I went back and looked at Legionnaire's disease, which if you look at this period in 1976, so in 1976 in July, there was a, a convention of the American Legion in Philadelphia at the Bellevue Stat- Stratford Hotel. And 34 people who went to that, of the 4,000 delegates, 34 of them died, 221 got sick. And this was, there was a massive investigation launched by the CDC to figure out what had happened. And they looked at everything from the microphones to the toothpicks to whether it had been anti-war protesters. And it was not until later that they found out in 1977 that this was an airborne bacteria but at that same time, there is a national vaccination effort that's, that is underway against the swine flu. Ford got the vaccination, and it, went, and it went terribly wrong, and they ultimately had to stop it by the end of the year. But we think of all the things we're going through, and they are, as singular. But in the spring and summer of 1976, you had these two events that are very similar to ours at this current moment, where you had a national vaccine program, the president getting vaccinated on public te- on, on national television, and then you had all these people dying of Legionnaire's disease. Um, it was just this kind of red-hot period uh, that was interesting to me. Emily Baz, what's your chatter? I am recommending a piece about the ACLU by my colleague Michael Powell that I thought was just a really interesting exploration of internal tensions at the ACLU between their free speech docket and their other dockets, including their racial justice docket. There was lots of blowback to this piece um, that I saw on Twitter, some of it from lots of ACLU lawyers. And there were sort of two critiques. One was, oh, nothing to see here because the ACLU has battled these internal tensions before in the 70s and the 90s. And I think something can be recurrent and newsworthy at the same time. And another critique was that Powell hadn't concentrated on the free speech docket that the ACLU wanted him to concentrate on. They had sent him a bunch of cases. Why aren't you writing about these cases? Why are you writing instead about various tweets from the ACLU Twitter account that seem to have a different kind of approach? And I mean, look, Michael Powell is a reporter. He gets to pick what he wants to focus on. And I think substantively... It just made me think a lot about my own positions on free speech, which are not purist, and the ACLU, and whether even if I disagree with some of the stances um, the ACLU takes, whether I want them to be doing it anyway. And I think there's just this really interesting tension between, you know, cause advocacy for racial justice, which totally can involve free speech defense. I mean, the ACLU has been defending Doray McKesson in this, in my view, crazy lawsuit in which he's like he was supposed to be, I think, criminally prosecuted, certainly civilly sued for his role in a protest. I mean, it's great that they're doing that. Absolutely that kind of work on behalf of Doray or other Black Lives Matter protesters counts as free speech work. But there are other times in which, like, you know, according to the ACLU's own lawyers, they are kind of not taking a high-profile role in cases and doing a new kind of balancing test. And that is worth thinking through. Like, whether you want to decide they're making the right call or not, I thought this was, like, a good entry point for the discussion. So that's my feeling about that piece. 
I have two chatters today. First, I want to chatter about a book, a new book I'm really excited to read. I just got a copy of May It Please the Court, which is former Justice Stephen Breyer's first novel, an erotic coming-of-age tale set at the Supreme Court. Oh, dear. The press release says, May It Please the Court is a sexual Romana clay in the tradition of Portnoy's complaint, writing with the vivid, seductive language that was his hallmark as a justice. Breyer tells the story of one quiet but powerful man's carnal awakening. I, for one, am excited to read it. Emily, have you heard about that book? Um, I'm trying to decide what to say. Have I heard about that book? Yes, I've heard all about it. It's supposed to be excellent. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of it. <laughs> I can't believe that no one has written an erotic novella called May It Please the Court yet. It's, it's, a, it's out it's there title. to be grabbed. Well, now it's, now it's not anymore because former Justice Breyer has it. Uh, my other chatter is about a fantastic story in the Atlantic, which I'm sure you guys have seen. Um, it's the best office return story I have seen so far. It's by Rachel Gutman, and it's about an apple. So somebody left an apple on a desk in the Atlantic's office back in March of 2020, and it just sat there for 438 days. And Rachel Gutman went back to the office. She visited it, and... She said, uh, I found it shriveled but intact, a biological marvel that most closely resembled an oversized date. The apple had not oozed. It did not stink. It was still firm to the touch and sported no visible mold. It appeared to have undergone an absolutely immaculate desiccation. How is it possible that this ordinary fruit was not, after 14 months plus, at room temperature, a puddle of putrid goo? And it's this great piece about why this particular apple didn't become a puddle of putrid goo. And I'm going to spoil it slightly to say that it's all, it all builds up to her actually eating the apple. That's it's, awesome. And there are photo, photos of it. It's an amazing, delightful story. I strongly recommend it. Listeners, you have also sent us incredible chatters this week to at Slate Gabfest. Really a glorious set this week. And I am so excited to hear from Andrew Getz, who is going to talk about Mick West YouTube videos explaining UFO footage. Hey, GapFest. Andrew Getz from Dallas, Texas. Mick West has one of the most interesting YouTube channels dedicated to the art of polite investigation. His channel gives a fairly logical explanation for all the UFO videos using such things as simple high school trigonometry, flare and glare on the camera lens, and the parallax effect. He does short explanations for the recently released UFO videos and has long-form videos as well with detailed explanations. The long-form interviews with some of the military officers centered around the naval footage are amazing to watch. His interview with Luis Elizondo, who took part in the 60 Minutes special, is really good, living up to his polite investigator tagline. How do we get Mick West on 60 Minutes? I'm looking at you, John Dickerson of CBS. I really hope you guys enjoy these videos. Love the podcast. I watched a couple of the Mick West videos. They're astonishing. If you have, if you have watched some of the UFO they quote UFO videos and are curious about them. And you're just like, what, what is going on? And then you watch these videos. I don't know if McWest has totally, you know, solved the case, but wow, they're super persuasive, very ordinary explanations for what is, what are being presented as totally mysterious phenomena. So I, I concur with Andrew Getz there. That is our show for today. The Gapfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, who is back. Yay, Joss. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. 
Follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and please tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? What's your first name or last name? What's your name? So our question this week is, I think it's Jocelyn's. Such a good one. It's a great one. So the question is, in what ways has your name impacted your personality? First or last or middle or even nickname? John. Well, Dickerson is, um, you know, causes a lot of people with extremely um, deep and powerful uh, creative reservoirs to come up with uh, ways to make fun of your last name. But it, uh, and so I suppose in some way that gave me an early introduction to the vast number of people who, who, really energetically will throw themselves into something that is by I think universal acclamation a pretty subpar joke and a pretty like you know it's just basically that people will really grab the low-hanging fruit and and so that was an early introduction to that to the extent that you hear a lot of that as a kid and then and then are are amazed to see it continue on later into your life and then the other thing is that having the word the name John which is also what people of my parents' generation referred to the bathroom as always struck me as just kind of this weird thing that I had no understanding about the etymology mm. of it, why you needed a, like a name for, why not just call it the bathroom? It, yeah. was, it was just so strange. And then finally, the John, with the exception of John the Baptist, it's just kind of a, it's just the most vanilla name. You know, I'd always try to get people to call me Jack because that felt like, okay, you know, like even John Kennedy burst out of the name and they called him Jack because it was it was too vanilla for somebody with his, you know, uh, eccentricities or, you know, flair. Why didn't anyway, you ever are, why didn't you ever become a Jack? Why didn't you ever? Because make I think Jack? you need to, you need to have other people. People who give themselves nicknames are in the category that's sadder even than those people who think making names for people who have uh, the whose last name are Dickerson, that's an even sadder category. So you can't give yourself a nickname, and so you you have to kind of earn it or have it be given you. Somebody used to call me John Frederick, which was which I kind of liked too. So that was fine. Frederick being my middle name, but that was the only one that I ever. And then di- my nickname in college was Dickie, which was uh, uh, which was. Did fine you go to too. college in the nineteen fifties? How did you have a nickname, Dickie? How could anyone go to college in the late 1980s and they have a I nickname I mean, go back Dickie? to the first thing John said. His last name apparently was Irresistible. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.